Okay, this is the second week, and we're on Psalm 2. Uh, so that means uh, about three years' time, we will finish uh, this sermon. Uh, <laughs> so we did uh, Psalm 1 last week, and that was very much an introduction. Psalm 2 is something of an introduction to the book of Psalms as well. Uh, the book of Psalms is easy to find in your Bible, unless you've got one of those sort of really holier-than-thou study Bibles, in which case it's probably near the beginning. Um, but it's in the middle, uh, if, if you didn't know that already. Psalm 2. Um, it's a book of books. Um, the book of Psalms is a book of books. It's a bit like Songs of Fellowship. Uh, it has many authors. Um, it has Moses, David, the song Solomon, sons of Korah, Asaph, uh, Boney M, no, not Boney M. Uh, no, they sung one of those, didn't they? Um, it's been added to over time. Um, there was stuff that was uh, pre-David, uh, stuff that, f- that was during the reign of David. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, Solomon wrote a Psalm or two. Uh, Moses wrote a Psalm. Um, it was also added to in the time of the exiles. So Boney M's famous, uh, by the rivers of, rivers, rivers, the rivers of Babylon. Uh, was not written by David, obviously, because uh, that happened hundreds of years later when they went into exile. Uh, the book of Psalms has been reordered and grouped over time. It's been added to, so there are five volumes, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, it also includes uh, musical directions. So in many ways, it's a bit like Songs of Fellowship. Uh, but in other ways, it's not like Songs of Fellowship because uh, there's no music and there's no CD-ROM, although there is musical direction. Um, it doesn't become dated or out of fashion. Um, we, we rarely sing now from Songs of Fellowship but one, do we? And uh, out of the 2,200 songs, uh, we probably sing less than 500 of them because many of them date and go out of fashion, don't they? Uh, it's much older than Songs of Fellowship. Uh, it's even older than Grace Hymns, but Nigel's not here, so that doesn't mean anything to anyone. Um, it's a 2,500 to 3,500-year-old songbook. Uh, but the, the key difference of the Psalms is that it is, they are scripture. Uh, they are breathed out by God. And as uh, Nigel said last week, they're profitable for our instruction, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. They're part of what makes us thoroughly equipped as people of God. So the five books of Psalms break down like this. And we're going to be, in this first series, we're really focusing on book one. Um, so uh, you've got more to look forward to. Um, but the first three books uh, were there uh, during the time of David. They were being added to. And uh, books four and five were, were, were sort of compiled and added on uh, later uh, during uh, and after the exile. Uh, so I don't know if you knew that about the book of Psalms, but that's how it is. Actually, uh, the, the final arrangement that we have uh, may have been as late as uh, AD 70, uh, the fall, after the fall of the temple. But uh, the book of Psalms that we have is very much the scripture book of Psalms, the, 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 the Hebrew scriptures uh, version of the, of the Psalms. Uh, the numbering that we have is very similar. Um, there's a few changes. Some psalms are considered uh, to be split and others are considered to be joined together. But, but pretty much 150 psalms. And Psalm 2 was actually probably numbered Psalm 1 in the early arrangements. Uh, in, in Acts, there's a reference to the first psalm and uh, it's Psalm 2. Uh, your Bible probably calls it the second psalm because uh, the people who put together the translation thinks it's helpful to tell us that it's, uh, it's Psalm 2 rather than Psalm 1. As Nigel pointed out last week, the Psalms are for our instruction. They teach us how to delight in God and his commands. They show us what a relationship with God is like, that it's not just something for your mind, that it's something for your heart. We're to love God with all our heart. And the Psalms teach us how to do that and how to delight in God. So without any further ado, let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is to scare you now, uh, very technical. This is a diagram from a book uh, by Vaughan Roberts called God's Big Picture. Uh, Nigel uh, brought to you a, a quote from Graham Goldsworthy, Last week, this is Graham Goldsworthy on biblical theology, on the storyline of the Bible. Uh, this is Vaughan Roberts, um, but he's not lightweight. Well, he is by comparison, but um, recommend this book. Very readable, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. Everyone really should have a copy. Uh, very instructional. Uh, this is the summary of the whole book. So although it looks really, really complicated, and I, I don't actually want you to, to, to squint too much, it's not supposed to be an eye test this morning, it tells us the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But I guess the thing we're most interested in is the line uh, that shows that from the fall, uh, there, there is a gracious promise to Abraham, and there's an ascendancy up to the point of David. In fact, let's get rid of all the... There we are. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, and the pinnacle of God's uh, rule on earth, uh, Solomon. Uh, and then there's a decline, a decline that, takes, uh, that splits the, 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 the people of Israel into Judah and uh, the northern... And, 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 and the Assyrians take over, and, and there's, there's just a decline to the point where uh, they sing by the rivers of Babylon and they're taken into captivity, into exile. And then there's a return from exile, the sort of thing we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and then there's a long wait. Uh, from the book of Malachi, there's a long wait, just waiting for something to happen. And then Jesus comes, he's born, he lives, he dies, he rises again, he ascends. And we're living in the dotted area. This is the time until Jesus returned, until there's a new creation. Uh, but that's the story of the Bible in, in just one simple line. Uh, very helpful for us. Uh, we're going to need to think of this a little bit as we go with Psalm 2. As we, as we look at Psalm 2, it's very easy to just pick it up and try and make it ours immediately. But we need to understand its context. It was written uh, by David, we're told. In the New Testament, we're told it was written by David. And uh, so we know that the context certainly understands everything that went b before. And, uh, but then there will be different times in history as the psalm book is put together, as the five books of the psalms are reassembled and grouped in different ways, that God's people understand Psalm 2 in different ways. So it has a meaning to David and Solomon, and it has a meaning as the kingdom declines and as they go into exile. And of course it has a meaning when Jesus comes. It has a meaning to us now, and that's hopefully what we're going to get to. And it has a meaning when Jesus returns. So the contexts <coughs> that we have to consider are at least this many. We have to think about David and Solomon, the kingdom in decline. We have to think about by the rivers of Babylon. How can they sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The return from exile... They're waiting. Uh, they've rebuilt the temple. They're waiting for the son of David to come. And then Jesus comes. And then he, he dies, he rises, he ascends. And we're waiting for him to come again. We're in that now period where we're waiting. And Jesus will come again. So question time. 
I don't know if you've, you, I tried to put some emphasis in the way I read the psalm. Why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why? Why, oh why? It's not... The heathen are raging. Discuss. It's not... Why do you think the people are restless? Um, let them eat cake. Um... No, it's, it's a cry of desperation. You must get that in the way that the psalm is written. It's not, um, can you tell me why? Can you tell me why the nations are raging? It's, why are they doing this? Can they not see how stupid they are? How doomed they are to fail? Do they really think they'll get away with it? I mean, seriously? Don't they know how much danger they're in? Hasn't anyone told them? Haven't they heard about Noah and the flood? Don't they know how good God is and how delightful his commands are? Don't they know that all who take refuge in God are supremely blessed? Nigel unpacked that for us last week, didn't we? Someone blessed is the man who does not delight in the ways of the world, but his delight is in the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's not just individuals, it's the whole world. It's the international conspiracy, the ultimate conspiracy, the whole world against God and his representatives on the earth. David and Solomon were the Lord's anointed. In their time, you were either part of Israel, a Jew, or a Gentile, heathen. You'd either signed up for the Torah, for the law, or you didn't. If David came warring against you, it was because God was judging you. The nations came to Solomon to hear all the God-given wisdom that he had. Remember the Queen of Sheba? Right from the very beginning, the world has rejected God's rule. It's there in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Did he? Did he really say that? No. Adam and Eve decide they want to make the rules. We will be the captains of our soul, the masters of our own destiny. They had abundant life living under God's rule. They'd lived in the ultimate safari park, the greatest ever botanical garden. They feasted on amazing food and it was free. It was growing on trees everywhere. And they enjoyed the presence of God. But because they wanted to determine their own way, they were chucked out. And ever since, mankind has been shaking its fist at God. We became murderers. We invented new ways, and still do, of doing evil. And then God sends judgment on the world in the form of the flood, And even after that, the rebellion continues. The first thing we read about really after that is the Tower of Babel, where men say, we will build a name for ourselves, and we can reach God. And that was foolish too, didn't they know that? God makes gracious promises to Abraham and his descendants, but they become tricky, devious, proud. And when he delivers them out of Egypt so that they can be his own people, they start grumbling and complaining. When he gives them the Ten Commandments, they immediately rebel. When he gives them the Promised Land, they think, I think it's time to live like the natives. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. 
when he gives them judges. I don't know if you ever noticed that the book of Judges is just a continual cycle of God's people rebelling against God, of him sending judgment on them, of them crying out to him, and of him restoring them, giving them another judge. And it's just a continual cycle. That line on that graph that we saw earlier is just like, it's quite depressing really, just continual rebellion, rejection of God, crying out to God, God being gracious, restoring them, and then they rebel again. And it's time and time and time again. God gives them kings. And what do they do? They turn to other gods. Ahab, remember Ahab, turns to the Baal and Ashtoreth because of the, the wife he's, he's married from another, another culture. And when God sends some prophets to tell them what they're doing wrong, what do they do? They beat them up. Now the word anointed, the Lord's anointed, means actually the Lord's Messiah. That's the, the Hebrew word, Messiah. In Greek, Christos, or, or the word is Christ, as we have it today. During and after the exile, the anointed, or Messiah role, ceased from being a dynasty. So there was this David and his dynasty, the Davidic kings. Um, but after the exile, after that decline, it ceased as a dynasty. And they were just waiting for the son of David to come, but there was no sons of David in between. Uh, and when Jesus appears, Mark introduces him to us as the Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Christ. And then in Mark chapter 8, uh, there's a famous moment where Peter realizes that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. So, how do people respond to the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. He arrives preaching freedom. How do they respond? Let's read a little bit from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has appointed me, anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Freedom, liberty. How do they respond? And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Rather like yours are fixed on me, actually. And he began to say to them, and this is what I can't do, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And said, doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What you've heard, you did at, sorry, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah sent was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman 
to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, only Nathan the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's the Lord's anointed. And within just a few moments, really, they want to kill him. I, I travel quite a bit. I don't know if you've seen these uh, adverts uh, in newspaper in, on, on, on the walls in uh, in uh, like Manchester Airport, uh, Heathrow Airport. Uh, quite clever, really. You take two pictures and two words, and HSBC use this as their their sort of way of teaching us that. Uh, Different cultures view different things in different ways. So, uh, nice camping holiday uh, for Tim, that would be heaven. Um, for some of us here, the idea of camping would be hell. Uh, some of us here seem to enjoy going on cruises. Um, uh, for some of us, that's heaven, a holiday, and for some of us, that's hell. Um, I, I thought I would come up with my own, so here we are. Um, in our culture today, um, there's, a, there's a view of marriage and there's a view of sexuality. Um, and some people view marriage as freedom, some people view it as slavery. Uh, some people view um, the use of uh, contraceptives as something that provides great liberty in, in sexuality. Uh, freedom from infection, the freedom of of children who wants children after all um, uh, but but can you see uh, depending on where you're coming from if you have a high view of marriage uh, that might actually be seen as something that is unnecessary <laughs> and something that is actually its own form of slavery so depending on what, how we are in our hearts what's already in our minds we have a different view uh, some people say, see something as freedom, other people see it as slavery. The nations are raging. Let's go back. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 12, he went out from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful on the Sabbath? to heal so that they might accuse him but he said to them which of you who has a sheep and if it falls in a pit on the sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out or which of you values a man more than a sheep so it's lawful to do good on the sabbath and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. And they all rejoiced. No. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him for doing good on the Sabbath. <laughs> on the Sabbath, they plot to kill Jesus. Jeremiah 2, long ago I, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve you. What about us now? Who has the right to tell you what to do? Who has the right to tell you what to do with your time, your money, 
your body, who has the right to tell you? How do we respond to God's authority and commands? John 8, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Is it about freedom? Is it about freedom? If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5 Verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever who has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people of his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's Titus 2. The grace of God teaches us to say yes, and it teaches us to say no. The grace of God. The grace of God. What can God's representatives on earth expect from the world? They can expect a riot. They can expect people to rebel against God's law, against God's anointed, against the Lord Jesus. This is in India. Uh, this is uh, people destroying uh, property of Christians. Uh, this is a, an Indian Christian hostel, um, uh, a mercy mission, um, where 40 people lived, uh, destroyed because it was Christian. Um, do you love your car? If you're a Christian in Iraq, uh, you might come home to your car and find it looking like this, because you're a Christian. Um, a bit closer to home, uh, this lady offered to pray with a patient. Now, she's since been exonerated, and she's been, since been told she can. But there was an uproar. How dare you? How dare you do such a thing? What are they doing? They're rebelling against the Lord and against his representatives. Against. She's a hero, isn't she? <laughs> um, what, what's a bad day for us? The car doesn't start. The baby was crying all night. Um, the, the, hot, the hot water's not working. Uh, leaky roof, loose slates, um, all those fireworks were going off late last night. What's a bad day for us? What's a bad day for Caroline? It's uh, you're suspended because you offered to pray. Can't you... <laughs> This is what rebellion against the Lord's people does. It's not our experience yet. But this is a new frontiers pastor who was shot dead in July 
in Dagestan. Now, we don't experience that kind of rebellion against God today, but that's the reality of Psalm 2. The people are raging against the Lord and against his anointed. One John three. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. What does God make of it all? He laughs. It's not a joke, but he laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's not a joke. This rebellion is not a joke, but it is laughable. You cannot be serious. Really, do you not know who you're playing with? Being in heaven doesn't mean that God is remote and doesn't know. Uh, The reason the psalm says that God is in heaven is just to emphasize that God has supreme power and authority. Do you really think that the maker of heaven and earth can't cope with a dust storm? The one who put the stars in place that we were singing about? Can you really think that the one who, who set the stars in place, who knows them all by name, that he can't cope with a dust storm? When he speaks, knees knock. Be afraid. Be very afraid. He says, you're going to have to deal with my representative. He says, From where I'm sitting, there's only one route to come, and that's my final word. You mess with my anointed, my representative, even my people, and it's me you'll answer to. That's what God says. That's how it was for David and Solomon. That was what their kingdom was like. If you had to deal with God, you had to deal with David or Solomon. All authority was given to them. So in those days, if you've got an issue, who are you going to call? You're going to call the king of Israel. And what's his address? It's the palace, Jerusalem. But Solomon wasn't the only son of David. One day, another king entered Jerusalem. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went out and did just as Jesus had told them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? My king set on Zion, my holy hill. John chapter 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, 
he being Pilate. Behold your king. They cried out, Hosanna. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, So I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, each on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, near Zion. It was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. We will not have this king to rule over us. What is the king's charter? In the third section of this psalm, we get to a bit where the king speaks. He says, I will tell you my mandate. I'll tell you what the Lord has given me to do. He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, back to David and Solomon. Uh, No, since we're doing the big picture thing, let's go back even further. Let's go back 4,000 years. Let's go back to the covenant with Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through his seed, through his descendants, through one descendant particularly, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And about 600 years later, God promised to Moses that Israel would one day have a king of God's own choosing. And then 400 years on from that, that's about 3,000 years ago, the people force the, 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 the agenda. They say, give us a king, give us a king now, we want a king now. And so Samuel is told by God to, to go and find somebody, and he's led to Saul. And Saul becomes king, and the people are happy, and within two years... Saul screws it up royally. Actually, it's a quite useful phrase, isn't it? Um, And God says, I am rejecting you, Saul. And God says, I am going to appoint another king. A king after my own heart. And that was David. And so Samuel runs off and anoints David in secret whilst Saul is still reigning. And after some very difficult years, David is eventually made king of Israel with Saul dying in disgrace in battle and then as he's made king he's only king of Judah initially and then seven years later he's made king over the rest of Israel and he comes to live in Zion I've set my king in Zion in Jerusalem and at this time God makes a covenant a covenant as he made with a covenant with Abraham, he makes a covenant with David. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they will dwell in their own place and be distributed no more. 
and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes, and the the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So in in one sense, all of that is fulfilled in Solomon. He was a son, and God said, he will be my son, and I will be his father. But it can't just be about Solomon, can it? Because although Solomon was the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, his kingdom ended. So it must be about another king who will be God's son. And... There's almost a thing that that God is joining together the promises of Abraham and the promises to David. My anointed king will be my son, and through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see that in David and Solomon, but of course we see it in another son, in David's greatest son. Mark chapter 1, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up from the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son. You are my son. My beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So far, so good. But that does raise a little theological issue. Uh, Mrs. Harmon, whoever she is, is probably listening on iTunes. So, uh, Mum, this is for you. Um, when Jesus came, apart from dealing with the money changes at the temple, we don't actually see him going around smashing things up, do we? And so, how does verse 9? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How does that apply to Jesus? Jesus has turned up and he's actually said, I haven't come for judgment. I've come to call people to repentance. How does that work? Well, there's a lot of scripture today and we'll read a bit more. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just a little challenge to us now. We're about, you know, well past halfway through this, so you know, wake up. Um, don't set your heart on the things of man. Set them on the things of God. Let's think about this. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, "If anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it." But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? And what can someone give in return for their soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him, 
will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the key to understanding how does this apply to Jesus. Uh, When we look at Jesus and his first coming, we don't get the whole picture. We don't see everything that's happening in in this psalm. We don't see verse 9 in the first coming of Jesus. We see it in the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes to judge. And he spoke about it very plainly, that he is going to come back with the angels. That must have been very confusing to people on the ground. It's what we call the now and not yet thing. Uh, that, that when Jesus comes, there is some fulfillment now and there is some fulfillment to come. But now and not yet. So John the Baptist was confused. Um, are you the one who's going to come or should we look for someone else? Because we see you doing some of the stuff, but we don't see you doing all of it. Where's the judgment I was hoping for? Says John the Baptist. Peter says, you can't go and die. No, you're the Messiah. You can't die. No, you've got to go up to Jerusalem. You've got to smash him to pieces with a rod of iron. That's what it says. Psalm 2. So Peter's struggling with that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. no. Um, Listen to what I'm saying, Peter. This is really important. If you don't like what I'm saying, you better watch out. Imagine Peter, how he felt being called Satan. (laughs) Um, Imagine how he felt about, right, come on, everyone. Peter's just said this awful thing. I called him Satan. Let me explain that to you. Peter, if you don't like what I say, you're going to go to hell. Hmm. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> He's coming again. Now this psalm is quoted again in Psalm 19, uh, not Psalm, in Revelation 19, verse 15. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one city on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on with white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you just think of Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, if you think that's all there is, watch out. Judgment is coming. You can run, but you can't hide. There's another twist in Revelation. The first time that Psalm 2 is quoted in Revelation, get this, right? To the church at Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, that's him, who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze, verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself has received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's us. Psalm 2. We're going to be doing verse 9. I don't know whether you fancy that at the moment. Um, we got given a box of crockery, didn't we, when we got married? Uh, old plates. That was, uh, it was labelled feudal crockery. Um, so that we could throw it at, at the wall whenever we got angry. Uh, we've never used it, actually, have we? Uh, yeah, made a slug trap out of it. What? Um, <clears throat> yeah, get, get used to breaking crockery, because uh, that's what you've got, got coming to you in the future if you're a child of God. 
Right, coming towards an end. So there's a big warning at the end, the fourth section of the psalm. Now therefore, O kings, who's the king of your life? Is it you? O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. Tony made a bit of a mess of that. When you kiss hands, when you're the prime minister going to take over office, you don't actually have to go down on your knee. It's 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 just a a handshake, actually. But this idea of kissing uh, the hand of the sovereign is, is, is part of our culture, but it's also part of worldwide culture. Um, is there no hope? Is all lost? No, there's some good news. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. That was true of David's time. If they were in rebellion, they could turn around and say, no, we give up. Uh, we, we bow down to you, David. Uh, forgive us. Uh, we, we bring ourselves to you. Rule over us, please. And he would. He would welcome them into his people. But it's true of Jesus' time too. Um, Luke chapter 7, uh, we read, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table and in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And it's true today. If you've not made peace with Jesus yet, you're in real danger. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not easy to tell you that. Uh, we, we've just done Christianity Week, Christianity Explored Week 3, and uh, we've seen that there's a problem with the world. Uh, the, the problem isn't just out there. The problem is here. Um, if we could solve the problem by plucking out our eye and cutting, cutting off our hand, as Jesus suggests but not meaning us to take it literally um, that would be okay we'd do that if we knew what we were in for in the judgment the trouble is we can't deal with the root cause of our problem the problem is in our heart it's, it's the way we are it's our whole being we can't do anything to fix that we need him to fix that uh, we by nature are part of the rebellion against God and judgment is coming At the moment, there's a lull in hostilities. Uh, You're sat here today hearing the gospel of Jesus. Uh, That day can pass. Uh, Today is a day of grace. Tomorrow, even tonight, might be the day of judgment for any one of us or all of us. The fire of his wrath is quickly kindled. It's an Australian bushfire. Terrifying. David in Psalm 2 calls us to repent and believe the gospel. He's saying, stop doing what you're doing. Turn around. The crazy thing he says is, turn around and run towards the judge. Why would you do that? He's the one that's coming for you. No, he said, turn around and run for him. Now, that's the big paradox of the gospel. The one who is going to be the judge is the one who today is the saviour. Come to him now while he's wearing his saviour hat. It's in Romans 8, isn't it? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It's Christ Jesus is the one who can condemn, but he's the one who justifies. So run to Jesus, run to Jesus. Make sure you are in him today. Today's a day of grace. 
One of the things they tell you, actually, in the bushfire manual is if you're trapped by a bushfire and it's going to get you, see if there's a lull and then run through the fire. Run through the fire to a bit that's already been burnt, where the fire has already consumed everything, because there it's safe. If you go to the bit where the fire's already burnt, if you can get there, run through the fire to it and you'll be saved because everything has already been burnt. That's quite a good picture of the gospel, isn't it? Because when Jesus came the first time, God poured out his wrath on Jesus. That's why Jesus goes to the cross, isn't it? That's why his king is installed in Zion. That's why he has a notice, just so that we all know This is the one who is the king of the Jews. This is the one who has died for you, who has exhausted the wrath of God. Run to him and you can be saved because it can't fall again. Go through the fire to the bit that's burnt already because it cannot consume you there. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Nigel told us a lot about what it meant to be blessed last week. I'd encourage you to go and look at the podcast. I think we've just got time for final application. One other place where this psalm is mentioned. It's in Acts chapter 4. And you know the thing that happens in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John went to pray. They met a man on the way. He asked Rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. You know that bit, yeah? Um, that caused a real stink. What happened is that uh, Peter and John used the opportunity by the crowd coming and they said, look at this amazing healing. Jesus did this. He's the one you lot killed. And he's risen again and he's proven it by healing this man. That's why that man's healed. And then the, the, the temple authorities uh, all rush up and they grab them and they drag them off. Actually dragged them off to the, the same people that just a few weeks previously had beat up and prosecuted Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. So Peter and John in the same court, really, with uh, Caiaphas and Annas and, uh, and the Sadducees, all going <laughs> all because they did the sort of thing that Jesus said um, that, that could be done even on the Sabbath. Uh, they just do the same thing and history is replaying. Um, they want to destroy Peter and, and John now. Uh, but God gives them amazing words to say. And the, the fuss made by the people who, you know, they can't deny the fact this man's been healed. Um, so in the end, they just let Peter and John go with a warning, saying, don't speak in that name again. And Peter and John said, we'll do what we like, because if God says we'll do that, we'll do that. So there. I mean, these are the people who were cowering a few weeks ago, who ran away. What's happened in between? Pentecost had come and the Holy Spirit had come and made them bold. They go back to their friends and they tell them, Acts chapter 4 verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant said... By the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage? Actually, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word 
with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't go and moan about the authorities. They didn't ask to see their MP. They didn't write to the newspapers. They didn't get an interview on local radio or on BBC or CNN. They just prayed that God would make them bolder. And not long after, a guy called Stephen is being stoned to death for proclaiming Jesus. He doesn't say, God, can you zap them? He says, don't hold this against them. I think we love our ease too much. Uh, Few of us have really suffered any persecution for the gospel, have we? A bad day for us is when the car breaks down or the central heating stops or the kid cries all night. But a bad day for a follower of Jesus is when things turn against you. What do you do then? You pray Psalm 2. You say, God, you're in charge. You deal with it. Just make me bold.